thank you so much for coming out this morning, braving the, uh, the uh, first snow of the year and uh, being here. And I trust that you came wanting to hear from the Word of God today. My daughter and I had an interesting conversation on the way to church. We were talking about a podcast that we both listened to. And I shared a little bit of this with Pastor Eric this morning about uh, um, the podcast was talking about the meat of the word. And if you want to grow as a believer, as a Christian, and you want to delve deep into the word of God and you want to grow, getting into the meat of the word happens in the church. Committing yourself to a local body that preaches and teaches the Word of God and honors the Lord Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son, our only hope of eternal security. So, you know, it's just, I just, this is not in my notes, so, you know, it's, it's just one of those things you kind of kind of got to get in the groove here a little bit and, and get going. But, uh, yeah, you pastors are knowing, you, you know what I'm talking about. So, but anyway, God honors the church. That is his tool for growing us as believers, for deepening our walk with him and allowing him to, allowing others to pray with us, to share our burdens, to, to lift each other up in prayer, to listen to the word of God. And let the Holy Spirit take that and apply it to our lives. That is how God will grow you and I and deepen our walk in our relationship with Him is through this local body and committing yourself and showing up every time. Not that you're going to gain favor or anything like that, but it's, it's to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, I hope you're enjoying and learning from this Advent series that uh, we started. Advent simply means, and I'm sure you've probably already looked this up, Advent simply means the, not- the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And this Advent series is about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our hope, a living hope. It's the living hope that we have in Him. He is the notable person, and the event is the Messiah coming, taking on human form and filling every demand of the law that through Christ's atoning death, we can be reconciled to God. That's that's the long and short of it right there. You'll find in Philippians chapter 2, the passage where he talks about coming and taking on human flesh and becoming one of us and becoming like us. I know we have a lot scheduled this morning, so I will try to keep us on schedule. Um, In looking at the Abrahamic covenant and what it means and how to, and what it means and how it foreshadows the new covenant in Christ, we could easily take several Sundays. And I'll be honest with you, in prepping for this, there are so many different avenues that you could go down in the study of Abraham and how it relates to Christ and, and a covenant and a new covenant and promises and a new promise. It's, it's almost like, like walking into an all-you-can-eat buffet and trying to decide, because you can't eat everything, you know, but you have to pick and choose. And so this morning... Uh, we trust that through the through prayer and leading of the Holy Spirit that we've kind of narrowed this down, and uh, so. But the Abrahamic covenant foreshadows the new covenant that we have in Christ, and we're going to start with a, a thirty thousand foot look, if you will, and then drop down and take a much closer look. So there's just so much there. So let's get this plane on the runway and into the air. So this morning, just a reminder that we've come to praise, to worship, and exalt the name, the person, and the work of Jesus Christ, because He 
is our eternal hope. He is the one who redeemed us, who gave us this glorious gospel that we have. And so we bask in that this morning. So we've come to exalt the name, the person, and the work of Jesus Christ to gain a better understanding of the gospel. That through this Advent series so far, we've seen different glimpses of the gospel in the lives of, of Adam, of Enoch, and Noah. And now we're looking at Abraham. Christ's work is so complete that as a believer in Christ, we can't do enough good works to earn salvation or favor or more acceptance with God. Our acceptance before God as believers is not performance-based. That is so huge. I know many of us grew up in maybe some other churches that accented that, that, that promoted that kind of thing. But this morning, I want us to get a full understanding that our acceptance before God as believers is not performance-based. So we're going to look at that. In looking at Abraham this morning, I want us to understand a few basics before we start unpacking the eternal promise of Christ. Most of us know the story of Abraham, and so we're not going to go back and, and rehash all of that and, and talk about a lot of that. We know about his leaving home and the promises that were made to Abraham. But I want us to take note of a few important things and the seriousness of the covenant that was made with Abraham and the covenant that is made through Christ with us as believers. First of all, it is not made between equals. And if you go back in history, you'll find that covenants were made often between conquering kings and the people they conquered and how they constructed that, um, that covenant. There's no negotiating between the parties. And then thirdly, it includes a list of requirements that include blessings and curses. If they followed the requirements, they would, there were blessings. If they disobeyed, there were curses. And then lastly, it is ratified by blood. And you can read about the Abrahamic covenant and how that was ratified by blood in Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 through 21. For time's sake, we will not go back and read that. But I would encourage you to read that because it highlights these, the seriousness of a covenant. And we're going to be looking at the covenant that Christ has made with the redeemed, with believers, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and His finished work, that covenant, that eternal covenant, and the promises that He has made with us and for us. And it depends on His faithfulness, not ours. So instead of spending half our time on Abraham and the other half on the promises of Christ, I wanted to sort of blend all of that together. And I want us to look at both together as we go through this and see how the Abrahamic covenant foreshadows the eternal covenant, the promises that Jesus Christ made with the redeemed, His church, the bride of Christ. So this morning, the big idea is... Jesus perfectly and completely fulfilled the law. We as believers have been credited with perfect obedience to the law, and God the Father now sees us as having that perfect obedience. In Jesus, therefore, we can now rest in His sovereign grace and the security of His eternal promise. That's huge, folks, because Jesus perfectly and completely fulfilled the law. We as believers, the redeemed of Christ, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ alone through grace alone by faith alone, have been credited with perfect obedience to the law. And God the Father now sees us as having that perfect obedience. How many times through a week period have you struggled with that? Maybe for 
for a day or a week or a period of time you were struggling with a besetting sin or there seemed as though there was just an onslaught of temptation. And maybe some of them you yielded to, maybe some of them you were victorious over. And you began to think, man, God must really be upset with me. He must really hate me. Listen to me. God the Father now sees us as having that perfect obedience in Jesus Christ. So in Jesus, because of that, we can now rest in His sovereign grace and His and the security of His eternal promise. So the title of the message today is Obedience and Grace and Eternal Promise. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And I don't know, I, I, I would be voting for, if, if it were ever to come up for a vote, just hint, um, to take a deep dive into Romans as a church because we're talking about legalism, moralism, acceptance, and, and all of that, and who we are in Christ, and what we have in Christ. And, and so as believers do, do some people interpret Romans chapter 6 as one that says, okay, now that as a believer I have a choice, I can either sin or, or not sin. And, and yet that's not what Romans 6 is all about. It's saying that's who we were now in Christ. We have the ability, we have the Holy Spirit that lives and resides in our soul to lead us, guide us, and give us the power, the ability to yield to Christ and to follow Him. We don't have to sin anymore. So I appreciate the reading of Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I'd like to read that again just very quickly. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Let's bow for prayer real quick. Father in heaven, we humbly bow before the throne of grace, and we come to you, Father, this morning in Jesus' name. And we exalt that name this morning. We worship and praise and adore the one who redeemed us, who lived perfectly, who imputed, us, imputed to us the righteousness the holiness, the obedience of Himself and took our sin, took our shame. And because of that, we can boldly come before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in time of need. And Father, so we bow before You this morning and I pray, Father, that Your Word would go forth with authority and power, that Your Holy Spirit would take this Word of God and apply it to each individual heart and life, that your, your Holy Spirit would do that work in our life, in our hearts that only you can do. And Father, we trust that as a result of gathering today, our relationship would be deepened with our Lord Jesus Christ. Our understanding of the gospel and what we have in Christ would be deepened and strengthened and would be an encouragement to us as we live in these days and times as our heart wants to do that which is right. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so, Father, as we battle 
against sin as we preach the righteousness of Christ and His faithfulness. I pray, Father, that You would do that work, that You would encourage us, You would challenge us, You would comfort and strengthen us. We'd be strengthened in our inner man. And as Paul prayed in Ephesians, that we might have the strength to understand, to comprehend what is the love of Christ, the breadth and depth and height of the, of the love of God for us. So, Father, we commit this time to you and ask that you would use it for your glory, for your honor, and that you would do that work that only you can do. We'll praise you for what you do and accomplish. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. We've come to a point in history where we began to see God's unwavering commitment to foreshadow His plan of redemption, to reclaim His creation from the curse of sin. God zeroes in in this particular study on one man, Abraham. And I do understand that it was Abram, and then he was called Abraham later, and so, but for preaching's sake and for without having to explain all that, we're just going to use his last name and we'll just say Abraham, okay? So you'll know where we're coming from. God zeroes in on one man, Abraham, a worshiper of idols and false gods in the land of Ur. Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 and 3 simply says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham, Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led them through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. In God's calling of Abraham, we begin to see the doctrine of election. We begin to see the sovereign, omnipotent grace of God at work calling and saving whom He will, and we begin to see the order of salvation. So salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, is not a, just a New Testament thing. It goes all the way back, according to this, to Genesis. All the way back to the beginning. God's grace comes to this completely undeserving idolater, a sinner, with life-creating authority. God calling Abraham to Himself looks a lot like the description of you and I in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work, at work in the sons of disobedience. So many times we take verses 8 and 9, and leave off the rest. And that's sad, because the whole description, the whole process of salvation is beautifully described there in Ephesians chapter 2, and the process. Among whom we all, and all means all, right? There's no exclusions. Jew, Gentile, Men, women, children, it doesn't matter. All means all. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that simply means missing the mark. And the mark is God's holiness, His righteousness. And not a one of us, because of our sin nature, can attain and do enough good works and enough good things to reach the holiness that God possesses, that He is. And so even all the way back in God calling Abraham, we begin to see the character of God, His holiness, His righteousness. And let me say this, that as you read through Scripture, if you read through every year from Genesis to Revelation, that's great. But read it with a purpose in mind. The purpose would be that wherever you're reading, that you read it to see 
God's character. That you read it to see who God is. It's been said, and I grew up being taught this, and there is an element of truth in it, that Scripture is God's love letter to man. And that is true. But that's not the most important aspect of it. The most important aspect of Scripture is how, is how God is revealing Himself through the pages of Scripture to us. His character, who He is, what He wants to do. And this last year, I started reading through, and you know, I, I mean, I didn't start reading through, I've been reading, but... Uh, I started reading with the idea of, of finding God in each chapter, seeing the character of God in each chapter. And it's amazing how, how the Holy Spirit brings that out and how much you begin to see the compassion of God. You begin to see who and what He is and what He wants to accomplish. And so, anyway, that was just a little sidebar, so you can take or leave that. But um, So... You know, it's just one of those things when you preach, and you pastors and you elders understand this, that when you're preaching, the Holy Spirit just brings, there's so much, you have your notes, but you follow the leading, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and what needs to be said usually gets said. So uh, anyway, I just felt a real need to, to say that. So you'll forgive me if it didn't mean anything to you. So, but back to Ephesians chapter 2. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. We're going to be unpacking some of that here as we go down through. So remember Ephesians chapter 2. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one, not one single person may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, which God, has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Verses 1 through 4 are the description of each of us outside of redemption before we were saved by the precious work of Christ. God in His wisdom has begun to unfold His plan of redemption that gives us an eternal hope in the person and work of Christ. Sorry. <laughs> what did God say to Abraham? I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And I will bless all the people of the earth through you. Eight times God said, I will. There was only one requirement to set these promises in motion. Abraham had to go. He had to obey. He didn't have to work it out. He didn't have to figure out this 1,500 mile journey. He didn't have to make it happen. He didn't have to try to bring it to pass. All he had to do was obey. We just read through Ephesians chapter 2 in the order of salvation. 
Let me ask a rhetorical question. If you're a believer, if you've given, if you've been saved by the precious blood of Christ, did you have the ability to obey the law? Did you have the ability to obey Christ and follow Christ before that? You couldn't. None of us could. There was no option. We couldn't obey. So as you think about Abraham, think about that process of salvation. God did all the work. That's the point. God, in His sovereignty, in His omnipotence, did all the work necessary to provide Abraham with the faith to believe in order to obey. Complete obedience equals trust. Pastor Andy and I were talking about that this last week. Last Sunday, as a matter of fact. Complete obedience equals trust. And when we talk about not being able to trust the Lord, when we talk about having trust issues, we're talking about complete obedience in the promises of the Word of God, in the faithfulness of God being able to bring it to pass. This same truth applies in your life, in my life, with the promises of God. It is up to God to bring them to pass. It is up to us to act in faith and obedience. Where does faith come from? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I'll be honest with you. Times in my life when I had faith issues... You know, I thought God wasn't really doing something, and, and it's like, God, what's going on? And I knew in my heart that there was faith was not where it should be. You know what the answer was and still is? Getting into the book. Getting into the Word of God. Bathing my mind and my heart in Scripture and letting the Holy Spirit take that Word and build my faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So don't worry about the how. Trust in the who. Because we can't muster up faith. We can't muster up all that we need we can't muster up obedience that comes through the person and work of Christ and through the Holy Spirit. He gives us that power to obey, to follow, to have faith in what he, He's promised He would do for us. If God says, I will, like He did for Abraham, He will do it. We need constant reminders of that, don't we? And that's what the Word of God is. It's reminder for us through the pages of Scripture. How many times going through the, this study in Hebrews have we looked at the, how better Christ is compared to? And we need, like the children of Israel, those constant reminders from the Word of God in our hearts, in our lives, that Christ is better. Christ is omnipotent. And Christ is faithful. Whether we are faithful or not, whether we are faithless, God is faithful and will do what He has promised. I encourage you today that just as Abraham trusted God's promises and obeyed, let's trust God, God's promises in obedience to Christ. Whether He fulfills it all in your lifetime or not, you can know for sure that God will do what He has said He will do. Remember that complete obedience equals trust. Paul in this passage uses the example of Abraham, David, and himself to make a point. If anyone has, made, if anyone has been made to have a right standing with God, it was surely these three men. Paul makes his first case with Abraham. 
Likewise, he uses David in, chapter, in that same chapter, verses 6 through 8, to establish Abraham. The apostle is making an argument from the greater to the lesser here. And if Abraham was justified by faith alone apart from works, then how much more is everyone else who exercises faith in Jesus Christ? There's, these are some of the most important verses of, of Scripture in clarifying the gospel in the Bible. And we're going to talk about why that's so important in just a little bit. But if we get the gospel wrong, hear me, we get everything else wrong. We get how we live wrong. We get how we function in the workplace wrong. We get marriage wrong. We get everything else wrong if we misunderstand the gospel of Jesus Christ and what we have. Our outline for today for Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, is, first of all, what Abraham found in verses 1 through 3, and then what Paul taught in verses 4 through 5, and what David declared in verses 6 through 8. Here Paul goes from Abraham to himself and then to David. This speaks to the unity and perfect harmony from one biblical author to the next the next writer of the entire Bible. Scripture speaks with one voice and never contradicting itself. So what did Abraham find? Verses 1 through 3. Paul begins with what Abraham found in verses 1 through 3. The apostle writes in question form, What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. Paul brings to our attention the example of the one who has attained a right standing before God, Abraham. It is noteworthy that Paul goes back to the Old Testament to make his case for justification by faith. This clearly establishes that there is only one way of salvation in both the Old and the New Testaments. As Paul teaches justification by faith in the New Testament, he uses the Old Testament to make his point. This case is legitimate if there is only one way of salvation in both Testaments. And that's an important statement. It legitimizes justification by faith when it's evident in both the Old and the New Testament. There was not one way of salvation then and one way of salvation in the New Testament. We are all justified by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is noteworthy that Paul does that. As Paul teaches justification by faith in the New Testament, he uses the Old Testament to make that point. This is the... This is the case. Everyone who has ever been saved in the history of the world has been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No one has ever been righteous before God in any other fashion. What did Abraham discover regarding how to be right with God? This is the question that Paul raises in verse 1. This is the primary issue, isn't it, of every generation? How can a sinful man be made right with a holy God, a righteous God? This is the very question that the gospel addresses and answers. It doesn't leave us hanging. How can we find acceptance with God? First of all, we note that Abraham was not justified by works. Paul next makes a hypothetical statement. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. In verse 2, when Paul writes justified by works, he is talking about Abraham's self-righteousness. And that really is what we're talking about when we talk about works righteousness. It's self-righteousness. He's talking about Abraham's self-righteousness in his own morality and self-perceived goodness. 
And that describes all of us before salvation. What did he do to contribute to his salvation, whether in full or in part? Abraham was justified, if Abraham was justified by works, then he could legitimately have a reason to brag that he contributed to his own right standing before God and purchased his own salvation. I'm sorry, I just hit a button, so I'm finding where I am. That's the technological part. Okay. So Paul was writing about the self-righteousness of Abraham and his own morality and his self-perceived goodness. What did Abraham do to contribute to his own salvation, whether in full or in part? If Abraham was justified by works, then he could have legit legitimately bragged on how he contributed to his own right standing before God and purchased his own salvation. And that, my, fault, my friends, is just merely a hypothetical statement that Paul brings because the Bible clearly teaches that by man's own works, he cannot be justified. Paul is following an errant line of thinking for the moment to show that it is a false premise. Abraham could be justified if Abraham could be justified by works, then he would have something to brag about. At the end of verse 2, Paul slams the door on this line of faulty thinking. He answers, "But not before God." Verse 2. Even Abraham's best deeds appeared as filthy rags. There is nothing he can do that will merit his favor before God. When he stands before God, there will be no boasting of what he did because God is a jealous God. And according to Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8, I am the Lord, my glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols." The idea that a man, even the best of men like Abraham, can be justified by works cannot be true. If it were true, God would have to share His glory with man, but God will not share His glory, and because He is a jealous God, and He is jealous for His own glory. Abraham believed God as we continue Paul continues this line of thinking. He writes, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In verse 3. Here Paul uses Scripture to anchor his point. He quotes from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, showing us that he is, not, he is teaching that his teaching is not new, but goes all the way back to Genesis. Who was Abraham? When God called him, and it's important I think that we understand this, when God called Abraham, there was absolutely nothing good in Abraham. He lived in the pagan land of the Ur of the Chaldees, was a pagan idolater who worshipped, according to history, the moon god. The pollution of sin reeked in his life Abraham had nothing good whatsoever to commend himself to God. When we think of Abraham, we think of Abraham the believer. And we sort of lift him up and kind of... I started to say idolize, but not that. We lift him up as someone sometimes who we should be like. And I appreciate Pastor Eric's note last Sunday that these are not men that we're lifting up as we look through this lineage of hope to be like. Because all of these men were sinners like you and I. 
it's more about the living hope and, the, and, and how Christ came, the lineage that He came and the hope that we have in Christ. When we think of Abraham, we need to realize who he really was. Abraham was not a believer when God first called him. He was Abraham the idolater and the blasphemer. Notice it says there in our text, Abraham believed God. The order of the words that appear in the original um, New Testament places the word believed first in the sentence. And it literally reads, believed Abraham God. In that language, if you wanted to draw attention to a word, they usually put it at the beginning of the sentence, which is called the emphatic position. This placement draws the attention of the reader to the first word. So Paul wants to emphasize the word believed. Abraham took God at his word and believed. What was the result of Abraham believing? God had previously promised Abraham that a great nation would come from him. From this great nation would come the Messiah, who would be the Redeemer of God's people. And according to John chapter 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. So somehow we know the gospel was preached to Abraham. We're not given a lot of detail about that. He saw it and was glad. We don't know how he came to know the gospel, but Scripture says it was made known to him. Abraham believed God, and that is all he did to find acceptance with God. He did not believe and work. He simply believed God. And I just do want to say in passing that in our day and age, there is this prominent ideology that we are saved by grace, but we are kept by works. That same grace that saves us, delivers us, redeems us, and calls us to God in heaven, sanctifies us. And God has created us in Christ Jesus for those good works, but we will never in and of ourselves be able to maintain and those good works were never designed for you to gain more favor, more acceptance. They were given so that you could do those things and glorify your Father which is in heaven. What was the result of Abraham believing God? God previously promised Abraham that a great nation would come from him, and from this great nation would come the Messiah, who would be God, the Redeemer of God's people. So we begin to find that because he believed, that righteousness was credited to Abraham. What was the result of Abraham's belief? Paul continues, it was credited to him as righteousness in verse 3. And this word credited is found nine times in Romans chapter 4. In verse 3, it was it was credited to him. In verse 5, his faith is credited as righteousness. In verse 6, God credits righteousness. In verse 8, God will not take into account, and that means not credit. In verse 9, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. In verse 10, how then was it credited? In verse 11, the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them. In verse 22, it was also credited to him. And in verse 23, it was credited to to him, and finally in verse 24, to whom it will be credited. God takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and transfers it into the account of the sinner who believes on the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Abraham believed and it was credited to him in verse 3. Note to who it was credited. To him. Only to Abraham. This teaches that the person, that each person must believe on their own that just as a father believes the gospel does not mean that righteousness is credited to the whole family. Each person must come to saving faith in Jesus Christ on their own. We can't transfer that righteousness of ourselves that we receive to anyone else. What's the meaning of righteousness? The word righteousness means perfect conformity to a standard. Justification gives a standing of perfect conformity to God's own holiness. This is what was transferred into Abraham's account. This transfer happened immediately. It was not progressive. It was not a little bit here and a little bit there like sanctification. It happened in the twinkling of an eye at the exact moment that Abraham believed. Literally, one nanosecond, one second he was spiritually bankrupt, and the next nanosecond he possessed all the riches of God's grace transferred to his account. It was a complete transfer. It did not come in installments. Abraham discovered that he was justified by his faith rather than by his works. And I pray that this morning that everyone here will realize that we've been justified by faith, not by our works, not by our goodness. His faith is credited as righteousness. Next, I want to look at what David declared in verse, verses 6 through 8 of our text. Finally, we see what David declared. Paul uses one of David's psalms as the confirmation for <clears throat> the case that he has made with Abraham. Paul writes, just as David also speaks of the blessing referring to divine favor in salvation on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Then he quotes Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, that teaches that salvation is apart from works. Isn't that encouraging? That justification by faith goes all the way back in the Old Testament. It's not anything new. Justification by faith in Christ alone. Blessed, in verse 7, is the opposite of being cursed. A person is either blessed or cursed, and there is no middle ground. To be cursed as an unbeliever is to be under the wrath of God. To be blessed means is to be under the favor of God and find all of our acceptance in God the Father. When our sins are forgiven, that entire slate is wiped clean. You ever stop and think that at the moment of salvation in your life, in my life, all of my sins, when Christ died, He died for all, all means all, of my sin. He took upon Him all of my sin. So whatever I might fall short in the future, it's already been taken care of. And so I don't have to come back and, and get saved all over again. I don't have to come before Him and, and confess something that He didn't know about. I come running back to Christ in His loving arms every time I fall. And I hope that you do too. Every time that you sin, that you fall short of the glory of God, the holiness of God. That you go running to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not to seek forgiveness, but to seek His love. Because all of that's been handled at the cross. God has canceled out the debt that we owed the justice of God by having His Son incur the debt on our behalf. 
God has taken our sins. He has buried in, buried them in the sea of His forgetfulness to be remembered no more against us. There are three imputations I want us to take a look at. And we're going to start putting the landing gear down in this plane. Head toward the runway. There are three imputations that occur, that have occurred in history, and for you as a believer. The first imputation occurred when Adam sinned. His sin was immediately charged to the account of every person who would ever live. Paul writes in the next chapter there in Romans, Therefore, just as one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. At the moment that Adam sinned those thousands of years ago, you and I also became a sinner. Original sin was transferred to us because we are descendants of our of Adam. Adam was our representative. Adam acted on our behalf, and that was the first imputation. Adam's sin was credited to your account, to my account. The second imputation was another transfer of sin. This occurred about 2,000 years ago on the cross when all of the sins of all the people who would ever believe in Jesus Christ were transferred to Him. There's a doctrine there, and for time's sake we'll not get into it, but a very important doctrine. It occurred when the sins of all the people who would ever believe in Jesus Christ were transferred to Him. The Bible says, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. In that moment, Jesus bore our sins on His body, in His body, on the cross. And according to 1 Peter 2, 24, in so doing... He accomplished all that we needed. Galatians 3.13, He was made to bear the curse of the law for our sins. The third imputation is the imputation of the righteousness of God in Christ that is transferred to everyone who believes. I asked Pastor Andy last week if we could sing Standing on the Promises this morning before I preached. That song, and I appreciated the clapping. You know, that, that song and the doctrine that it represents and what we have in Christ and this third imputation that we're talking about should make us rejoice and be glad and excited and exalt the name of Jesus Christ because of who and what He is, because of what He has given us in redemption. And we need to rejoice in that. This is the truth of justification by faith. The righteousness of Christ secured through His sinless, sinless life and substitutionary death is credited to all who believe. The sin of all believers was transferred to Jesus Christ on the cross. How precious is that? To know that God knew every sin I would ever commit. Every time I would reject His name. And yet through His sovereign election, reached out to me and called me to Him. How precious is that? We should rejoice you know, one of the privileges I have of sitting in the back taking care of the coffee, and I do want to publicly thank 
Cassandra for filling in for me this morning and keeping the coffee going and doing a marvelous job, and I appreciate that. But I get to see during the song service who really is getting the message of the song. So just know, you know, it's not teasing. But there, there are those of you who get into the message of the song and truly worship and exalt and exalt the name of Jesus Christ because of this doctrine of imputation. Can I just tell you, doctrine is not boring. And there is a story, it's, I, I don't know, I'd probably butcher it, but there is, a pastor was preaching one time and and after the service, the, a young man or somebody came up to him and, and said, man, that was a good message, Pastor. You didn't preach doctrine or nothing, just Bible. You know, well, you can't preach Scripture without preaching doctrine. Doctrine is riddled throughout Scripture. And so this doctrine of imputation, first, Adam's sin was imputed to the entire human race. Then the sin of all believers was transferred to Jesus Christ at the cross. Finally, the righteousness of God was credited to the account of all who believe and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That great exchange that last week Pastor Eric mentioned, my sin for His righteousness and what that means that I can stand before a just and holy and righteous God who is holy, 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 raised to that superlative degree. There is none holier. I can stand before Him. I can come before Him in prayer. I can come before Him in worship in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, knowing that He is pleased and loves me beyond all human comprehension. That is the progression of salvation. And folks, it happens in a nanosecond. Jesus suffered and bled and died in our place on the cross. Our sin was credited to Christ and Christ's righteousness was credited to us. So I want to pull the landing gear down. And you can tell, I, I so appreciate the opportunity to stand up here and speak. And to be honest, Ed, I was thinking about Boaz, and you took it first. So... But this is by divine appointment. In reading through and studying and looking at what God did for Abraham, it gives me hope. It gives me hope, not in myself, but in an awesome God who is loving and gracious and compassion and in His sovereignty has called me to Himself and given me the opportunity to serve Him, to love Him, to know what it means to worship the true and the living God. So the landing gear is down. We're headed toward the runway. I want to close with this. And I'll not be one of those preachers that have three more points. We truly will close with this because I'm running out of time. Hear me and hear me well with this. God does not require obedience from us so that you can be saved. God does not require obedience from us so that you can be saved. All the gospel requires is repentance 
and faith. That's it. Nothing else. Repentance and faith. And I know that some people may get uncomfortable thinking about that and saying, what about obedience? All I want to say about this obedience thing is just a couple things. There's a whole road that we could go down. There's ideologies today that pray a prayer after me. It is up to me to accept Christ into my heart, ask Christ into my heart. Can I just tell you, and maybe at some point, someday, we'll go down through false ideologies and see what Scripture has to say about that. But repentance and faith is what the true gospel of Jesus Christ requires. If I'm honest, this thing about obedience, I need to be obedient to the gospel That's self-righteousness. That's not the gospel. It's what the gospel produces. The gospel does not require obedience. It produces obedience in Jesus Christ. If the gospel were to require obedience from us, that would mean that We could be obedient apart from the person and work of Christ, and Jesus died for nothing. And if you're struggling with what I'm saying this morning, I want to encourage you to go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and take a deep dive into the order of salvation and what God is doing there, how God works in the process of salvation. The gospel produces joyful obedience in us. And if we get this mixed up, that's where we get that's where we end up in legalism, moralism, and works righteousness. Our eyes are taken off of the person and work of Christ. That's when the ri- the good news is not really good news at all. Because it becomes a system of works and of of keeping the law and works righteousness. And it becomes heavy and frustrating and burdensome. We are saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. Holiness in life is the fruit of salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you in Jesus' name and in his righteousness. And it's so important, Father, that we get the gospel right that we look at your word, that we not look at man's traditions or what man thinks, but we look and examine the word of God to know your redemptive power. And how you draw people to yourself. And Father, you are a jealous God and you will not share your glory with any other And we rejoice in the fact that we've been called to serve the living God. And you have given us the privilege of being a child of God, of serving, obeying the the living God, the true God, the one who gives us the ability to have faith, the one who gives us through your Holy Spirit the ability to obey the Word of God. And we recognize in, in this morning that in and of ourselves, we could never live a godly life. We could never live the Christian life. 
we could never obey you in and of ourselves. And so we rejoice this morning of how you have unfolded and unpacked and given us the example of Abraham, not to lift him up, but what you did through the life of Abraham. Your omnipotence and sovereign providence, how you call people to you. Father, we praise you and ask that you would do a work in our hearts that only you can do. We'll thank you and praise you forevermore in Jesus' precious name. Amen.